Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Grit is about having what some researchers call an ultimate concern, a goal you care about so much that it organizes and gives meaning to almost everything you do. And grit is holding steadfast to that goal, even when you fall down. Angela Duckworth from her book, Grit. Hello and welcome to Just Make the Thing, a podcast of people who want to start a thing and keep on making it. My name is Claire Tonti and today I am joined by a good friend of mine. Dan Steele, or Daniel Steele, is a primary school teacher and an inspiring one at that. We've been friends for a really long time, back when we were teaching together. Why I wanted to chat to him for this podcast is that he's one of my only friends who also understands the constant annoying barrage of ideas that I often feel and the whole starting things but not always finishing them thing. He's really creative and is an excellent, motivating teacher who was always loved by the kids he taught. I mean, they just thought he was awesome. Dan really cares about people and about trying to make things better. He also believes strongly in community and he has a lot to say about what it means to be a good man, a good father and husband, and well, a good all-round human as well. He never fails to make me think about things in a new way or recommend me a great book to read, and he does so in today's episode. I hope you find his story and his perspective on things as great as I do. I think every creative person or being needs a Dan Steele type mate in their life to bounce a thousand ideas off and understand that not all of them will be made. Dan will often ring me out of the blue and just say, Tonts, what do you reckon about this? And I'm all about the what do you reckon thing. Nothing would ever be made without people just giving things a burl and seeing what works. Here he is, Daniel Steele. Now, we've been friends for a very long time. We how, met, how long? Good question. <laughs> a long time. Well, because we met at a school we were both teaching at, yes. right? But we sort of knew each other before that in high school vaguely. Well, I remember it. <laughs> okay, I don't but remember you. Give me, you give me donuts. <laughs> I remember we did dancing classes together back in year 10 and I remember this funny, slightly awkward girl. Hey, what are you talking about? I was so cool. Yeah, no, I was just as awkward. <laughs> and uh, no, I remember, but then you had no idea. I even, because I remember we did the same teaching course. Yeah. Too. We had a few subjects together. And then when we worked together, I was like, oh, I remember you from year 10. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Probably I was made like, it really awkward I was too. really good at dancing too. I thought I'd left a mark. Well, you were one of the cool kids in high school. This is the well, thing. And so I just lumped you all into a group of people that had subjective. social skills. And <laughs> I think if by cool you meant I smoked, maybe. But yeah, yeah, that was that was the barometer of cool back then in year ten. Oh god, I was yeah. an idiot. Yeah, you were, but it's all right. You've come good. <laughs> uh, thank you. I wanted to ask you, though, because we have a kind of thing where we call each other and talk about creative stuff, spitballing ideas. This about, is true. Because you're someone that has a lot of ideas all of the time. It's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you're, and I ha- 
it met anyone else that's like me in that, that has like a thousand ideas that almost like annoy you to the point of exhaustion. <laughs> yes. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Absolutely. I just saw your old YouTube channel where you started doing kids songs oh, the other no, week. That will never <laughs> see the light. I saw that. I remember that and I was like, oh, this could be big. And then next week it was gone. Yeah. <laughs> that is the story of my life. Hence why I've just make the thing for anyone out there because I've got a thousand things that I've just done and people get really on board because I'm great at getting people on board with things. Whereas the difference with you, Dan Steele, which is why I wanted to bring you on for lots of reasons for people out there who listen to this show who have lots of ideas and don't know where to start. You have big ideas and you often are really good at sticking with them and sticking all the way through. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I I think so, but the, you also don't see the number of things that I'm like, I'll do this too, and then it doesn't happen. Like a basketball league I tried to start in Collingwood, I put posters up. For one day, for one day, and then I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. I've just had another kid. <laughs> oh, I love it. You just said to me before, oh, this time around, because you've just had a newborn and you've got two daughters now. You said, oh, this time around I've really, like, not done a lot of things. Like last no, time. I was very good because as I was putting some posters up around Collingwood for this basketball league, I was like, I oh, know, I'll get all these people that are disengaged and I'll, like, youth services and connect. I realise I've just had a second kid. She's a newborn. Just relax. Yes. So I stopped. It's the first time I've done that. So on that, you started your life as a teacher. Well, not started your whole life, but started the life <laughs> I was that... born into the classroom. Exactly. It was the year that I met you. It was the year your life started. <laughs> well, actually only 11. Yeah, correct. Exactly. No. So when we became friends was when we were both teachers. Yeah. And I, back then, I loved your enthusiasm And I wanted to ask you, what do you believe about community and building relationships? So for me, the thing that's always come through, I was really lucky that um, I guess it came from mum and dad were always big on, because I come from a blended family. So I've got, I don't call them half sisters or half brothers, they're just brothers and sisters. And we're like the Brady Bunch, but we don't sing and get along as well. You know, we're like a normal family. Yeah. Um, so for us, it was always about you just always work hard to get anyone to belong. So for me, community is everyone in some way is looking to belong to something and it's our job to help them either have that or get access to it or create the thing that helps them to get that sort of sense of belonging. So when I got into teaching, it's such an awesome thing because you get to do that with your class. So you get all these like ragtags and it's like every classic Disney, I know you hate Disney movies getting recreated into live action, but it's like, so think of like all those old Disney films you saw as a kid where you get the ragtag football group or some sort of group all together and you bring them all together and they build up to this, to this thing that becomes real for them. So how did you land on teaching? I have no idea. I genuinely have no idea. So my older sister did it. And she always used to talk about how much fun it was and you got to be silly and you got to really feed off the kids' sense of energy. I was like, that's great, good for you. That's, that sounds really lovely for you. Uh, and I did landscape architecture for a year and I reckon in two weeks I knew after I got over the fact that, oh, my God, there's, it's all girls. Like <laughs> there's all these girls here. I'm so used to just all boys yeah, being in my class. Like, school, didn't I was you? like, and yeah. there's a pub opposite the class that I can go and no one's like telling me I can't, I'm going to go there. And there are girls in the pub as and well. And there's girls in the pub. Yeah. And, and I just get to do this. Um, and so I failed. Of course I failed. <laughs> <laughs> I massively failed and... I kept talking to I kept hearing stories from my sister and I started to realise I was like, I really, lo- I used to love school, like the social aspect and also learning stuff. And 
So I thought, oh, yeah, that's, that sounds interesting. Like I'd get paid to just go have fun and get to help people and discover stuff. And so started doing, yeah, a teaching course. And I think six weeks in to the course, they threw us into placement. And I've always been someone that just sort of says, why wouldn't you try? Like, the, yeah. like my dad always said that. And it's always stuck with me. And the principal at my first school for teaching around said, all right, Dan, so you can either have grade six or you, or you can do what, you know, you can try and do prep, like good luck. And I went, all right, I'll, I'll do prep. I then got in there with these preps and it was the funniest. They were so awesome. They were so funny. I got in arguments with preps about like, no, 50 cents isn't worth more than, I know that 50 cent coin is bigger than a $2 coin. It's not <laughs> worth, no. And by the end I was like, you know what, you're right. I get it. Yeah. but. Yeah, they're very logical preps. I was like, that's, and that's weird. But it's got more sides. Like, you know, oh, I understand. But so I walked away and I was just like, this is great. And I'm so lucky. I often say it to my wife that I'm so lucky that I got to find so early on a thing that I really enjoy and that I seem to have these skills that work to it. Yeah. Yeah. Probably connects into being from a blended family too and having I, so many. I guess so. Like you always look back now and you start to make up these stories and tell these stories about sort of what yeah. led to it. But, yeah, I'm a middle child of a blended family with like both parents who'd come from previous marriages. So... I like to be the peacemaker and support people and try and work out what they're up to. Yeah, keep the team together. I, yeah, I guess I'll like, come on, everyone, build community, yeah. going back to what you originally asked. Yeah, because that when I think about you, that's something that always strikes me because when I was working with you as a teacher, it's so stressful teaching and we'll get mm, to that in a minute Yeah, um, and wonderful and a great thing to be doing and spending time with kids is amazing, but it is a very stressful environment. Yeah, it's really draining. Yeah, and I would always love there'd be a thing that went over the PA and you'd be like, coffee club, it's coffee <laughs> club time. Or there was a time where you got us all to do hip-hop classes. Like so all the teachers after school like once a week would go and do hip-hop and we let this routine. And it just it just brought so much joy to what I think can otherwise be a job that can get people down. Yeah. Or if people feel isolated, that's when things start to kind of become really, really difficult, really good. Yeah. What has teaching taught you about human beings? Teaching has taught me about human beings that all it takes is a couple of words to someone and you literally shift. You can shift their whole perspective on things and... It doesn't take much for the adults to do that. So I think teachers don't realise how much of an impact they have and it sucks because we never actually really get to see the difference we're making to kids because often they go and you might have them only for the one year or you might get them for two years mm. and you do this fundamental change in them by little words or like you used to love singing to the kids yeah. and you walk around you'd sing to them and the thing that you'll probably never know is you've tapped into certain kids where maybe they had never had that before. And so they start to realise this, they get inspired by you with the singing and they start to realise music is something that connects to them and then they go on and do something amazing that was stemmed from this thing. It's really telling that you asked that because talking of not seeing the impact. So 11 years ago I taught this kid who he had two paths, really clear paths that he could have gone down. One is not the best and he's ended up going down that one. And I remembered because he, he, you know, I don't want to make excuses for him, but he had, you know, trauma in the background. And so there was barrier, clear barriers that were going to allow him to be successful in um, certain ways for his life. And I got a message today. The run, one rule I've always said is no matter what, when you get older, if there's anything you ever need, 
like feel free to reach out and make contact again because I'd love to hear from you guys because I can see there's amazing potential in all of you and we worked really hard with this boy and he got in contact with someone that we used to work with and she actually saw him through um, this other service and he was asking if he could get in contact because he said, you know, I remember you always had these really good stories and these good messages and you could see something good in me and I need that because I haven't had that in a long time. So I'm wondering if he could, if I could get in contact with you. I was like, yeah, of course, give me a call. Like I'd love to hear what's happening with you and find out. So it was, I felt very, very honoured because I get like 11 years ago, there was a couple of words. I only had that kid for nine months out of his life and you get to say a few words and they somehow held on to him and, yeah. So it was pretty powerful today. It was, it was pretty cool. Oh, mm. I want to cry. <laughs> no, that's so special though. Yeah, and he, he was such an awesome kid. No one had ever said to him that a strength of his was being funny. So he always thought being funny meant he was being a smart ass and then he'd get in trouble. So he'd be funny to be a smart ass to get kicked out of class. Whereas I said, he made such a smart ass joke. And I was like, that was really funny. I was like, look, it was inappropriate. So we can't talk like that here. But you're really funny. And he was wow. like, oh, I'm not in trouble. I was like, well, if you do it again, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I was like, but think about different ways that you can be funny. Use that and because you make people, you make this class feel really great. That's why, that's why you go into teaching for those moments, right? Yeah. And like I remember writing a blog post about this saying, I wish kids at the end of every week would walk past and say, oh, you, you did this for me this week. This made a difference for me because it happens every week. But teachers get so, and I used to do it too, you get so caught up in you could have the perfect lesson and you'll do like all of these insane things and then you'll focus on the one thing that maybe you mucked up mm. as opposed to the 150 things that you nailed. It's making sure you, you give yourself time to be a bit grateful for all the stuff that you are doing really well. Yeah. It's really hard. I think teachers as people generally are really bad at looking after themselves yeah. and their own well-being. They yeah. spend, I think innately as a teacher, and I feel this about nurses too, they're often like, really good at looking after everybody else and wanting to do the best they possibly can to the point where they end up with an empty cup and then they end up in all sorts going on stress leave you know all kind of situations and not being able to give anymore because you you spread yourself too thin and that kind of brings me a bit to upgrade think learn oh god yeah okay cool (laughs) because that's the blog that you referenced before yeah yeah yeah, and I remember because we were talking in Hobart we went on a trip and I remember talking about your creative endeavor and what you wanted to do and Mm. and all of that stuff where did upgrade think learn come from very good question so um if I'm honest, it came from a real sense of frustration. So a school that I was at was really, there were staff there that were caught up in this real spiral of just negativity and they didn't see just how great the kids were. And I'd come from working at a, in a remote setting where we had some pretty challenging kids and, you know, conditions and stuff. And I came into this school that was, you know, typical like eastern suburbs school. Yeah, because you worked in an Indigenous Yeah, community in an Indigenous community in the Kimberley, yeah, there for a yeah. couple of years. And it was so awesome, like so intense at the beginning to prove yourself and get into the community and connect to community and, yeah, like work out ways that you could try and belong. And then I came to this school and I remember people saying to me, oh, you've got this boy, you know, he's really full on, like good luck with you. And he was fine. And so I was, I was working with these people that probably shouldn't have been in teaching. Mm. 
or maybe they, they had earlier on but they, they'd lost it and that's okay but it's not okay for the kids and the rest of the school because they were bringing down other people. So I was getting really frustrated and as you can probably tell, I'm very passionate about education and helping people and so I started thinking, I heard about Carol Dweck with that concept of growth mindsets and that idea of if you can help kids understand that there is no maths brain or there's no art brain, it's if you're willing to put in time, effort, repeated practice, you can continue to improve um, in different ways in different areas. And I started taking that, I started thinking, well, stuff it. Like if these people that I'm working with don't understand that, I'm going to start to reach out and share what I'm thinking, put it out there. I purposely started writing this blog, but I actually wanted to put it out to share it with the school community because I wanted to show them a different perspective and a different positive perspective around what you could do and what was possible. So I just started writing what I was thinking, what I was interested in, in, in teaching, in education, in about pretty much putting in belief into other people. Um, and <laughs> I look back at the first, the first stuff I wrote was so bad, like, because you're finding your voice, you don't, you, yeah. I wasn't, I didn't fully understand the ways to structure things. And, but it was just me just saying, like, I, I wanted to share my positivity and my belief that things can get better and things can be better if you choose to make them better. Mm. What did it teach you though about consistency? I loved the conversation that we had in Hobart because something that I like to do is I'm always like, all right, what have you learned from your mistakes? I remember sitting down talking with you guys and particularly with your man, Mr. Sunday movies. And um, his simple rule was you just got to keep doing it. Some Some weeks you have to grind it out. Some weeks it just naturally comes to you. And the rule is consistency because once you stop doing something, that's it. Mm. Um, and so for me, what I learned with consistency is some weeks I nate, like I just get weeks ahead with some posts because I just had creativity and I really subscribe to Elizabeth Gilbert's perspective around like the muse, you know, yeah. that muse sort of comes and I don't see it as like an entity like she sees it, but it's there and you choose to use it. And if you don't make time for it, then it sort of goes. And I just smashed up. And then other weeks I had no idea what I was doing. I was sitting there for hours yeah, so because you sort of you started writing the blog while yeah. you were teaching and you were doing your master's and you kept going with it even when you really hated it. I could tell that you <laughs> hated it a lot and you had a newborn and it was a full-on time in your life. Because of all of that writing, from my perspective, it seems to me and writing your master's and all the stuff that mm. you're doing, you developed a voice. So I realised you're right. I, I completely started. I realised that writing is where I get flow. So there's a few things I get it from like basketball and for writing. And for me, the blog is probably coming to an end now because the stuff that I'm wanting to do is probably I'd either have to create a new blog or like a new website because the the topics that I'm talking about now, the audience has shifted because the stuff that I'm wanting to write about is probably bigger um, within a classroom context. It's talking about bigger picture stuff with education and it's just made me realise that I do have a voice and I discovered and my wife told me for years, she's like, you don't need bloody permission from people to be a writer. Like you are a writer. But for some reason I was waiting for some sort of affirmation from someone. And, you know, so I started getting paid to write things and I had some things published and then, you know, other opportunities came. So it's just made me realise that by putting in all those hours, you start to also hone your craft, you get better at the thing that you're doing. And it's made me realise now, like, I've got all these ideas for different things that I want to write, but it's trying to work out what I can actually do right now and then making sure I shelve some things. But realising I'm so lucky that I've found this thing that I love to do, which is just writing. 
and actually yeah. starting to feel like I've got this voice and I don't care what people think. I know you and I have had conversations before where <laughs> you used to say you used to hit the submit button or yeah. like when you're sending something out there, I, I don't get scared in any way now when I send things out. Like I just randomly send things to editors or I send them out to like magazines and newspapers and I don't, I'm not worried about the rejection because I guess I've just learned that I've got this belief that, no, I do trust that I can talk about this stuff and I can write it and it does make sense. Some people won't agree with me, but that's mm. okay. I want to add to the discussion. Yeah. So sort of built up to this confidence. Yeah, it's really awesome. It's, I, it's, it's, so, it's so cool. It's really empowering. Yeah, well, I think it's that idea because for me I find that concept of consistency really empowering too because you realise, well, you're just going to send stuff out into the universe. Just send, and you might send 100 emails and get one email back or no emails back. But it's okay because, you know, you're just going to keep doing it. And then the really exciting thing is when things do start coming back and you do start, like, you've been published in newspapers now. Mm. You, you were on TV. You got interviewed on TV about your views on that teaching. Was so, that was so ridiculous. It was so awesome though. It was, gr- it was so much fun. It looked yeah. so much better than the actual room that I was in getting interviewed. It was pretty much full of, like, dirty boxes. <laughs> And you're sitting there staring at a little red light, but on on the TV it looks all lovely. Like really professional. <laughs> yeah. It's the magic of the te- of television, right, of the silver screen. Absolutely. It's all smoke and mirrors. Uh, yeah, I had to take photos and then I showed the kids when I was back at school the next day. I was like, I know it looks great, but check out what was actually in the room. Just empty boxes. Yeah. But isn't that kind of like a metaphor for life, really? Oh, yeah. Like everything. Instagram. Yeah, Instagram. Well, right. It's Instagram. Yeah. It's everything. Like at the end of the day, all the writers that have ever been have just been people who decided that they could write and then kept writing until they honed their – and they, obviously it's a mixture of talent too, but mostly – I mean, no one kind of is born with a stamp that says writer, I don't think. No, yeah. You know? I, don't, I don't think. No, or artist or painter. It's just if you've got the kind of gumption and the whatever right circumstances in which to keep going with it and keep writing. Yeah. I remember thinking, so the first time I got published was through Huffington Post and I'll never forget when I opened up the email and they said, oh, yeah, we'll run your piece. Like I was jumping around. It was after school. I was jumping around my classroom, losing it. And then, you know, more started happening and then Mamma Mia were running some pieces. And and then I started going like, I was like, oh, yeah, of course. Like that. And then I thought, no, you need to enjoy this because you're getting to write about stuff you enjoy and you're getting to do it. And it's so lucky getting to do that. But the reason I'm bringing up that is I learned pretty quick that I thought getting paid to do it would mean that I was a writer. But the first job that I got when I got paid, I was like, oh, that's the same as all the other ones. It was just, oh, so it doesn't matter. You're just doing what you enjoy. And that's what matters. Like just feeling that confidence to be able to put it out there has been mm. the biggest lesson for me is just keep giving it a go. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's been wonderful as your friend to see that progression too because hmm. I know that you suffer from that frust- creative frustration thing. I'm getting up my phone to open up Google Drive so I can literally like I have to have all these folders for things. One's called creative and in that there's about six different folders for different book ideas that I've got, picture storybooks I've got. Then I have, um, yeah, this bar- like basketball league came to me about, <laughs> to, you know, disenfranchised like men and, and young boys and trying to get the – so the thing <laughs> – is I hate that I can't do everything. Like I get so frustrated with that 
And I get an idea. I don't know if this happens to you, but so I've started realizing I sometimes have to avoid certain activities because that's when I get ideas. <laughs> so, which is great. But like, so if I'm going for a jog or a walk along, like hiking, I just get all these like, oh, imagine it's almost like my brain has stopped. And then when I'm hiking, it's like, oh, you know, now we'll join all the dots together. And so I can see how all these things would work. But it's so frustrating because I also know I can't do all those things. And I start, like my wife makes so much fun of me because we wake up in the morning and I'm like a Labrador. I'm like, oh, great, you're awake. So what I was thinking is we could do that and then this would, and imagine if we, and then she's like, just, just stop. Yeah. (laughs) And so I can understand now it's just, it's so frustrating because I guess every idea feels great. But then mm. not all ideas, I don't know, can work out at this time. So you sort of have to be selective. <laughs> yeah. Have you started it's so to, hard. Have you started to work out how to choose? Um for me, I think the thing that I've started doing is trying to it's a I don't know how to explain it. I'll try I'll try. So what I try to do is I try and picture me now and me in a little bit, like a little bit down the track. And so I'm always aware. I read the book um, by Angela Duckworth, Grit, and I've always been like a bit of a goal setter or like thinking of like, oh, I'd love to do this. This is what I'm aspiring to. And she's amazing because she says you've got your high-level goal, like your purpose, what you want to work towards, and then you've got your thing, the mid-level ones that will help you get there and then the smaller ones that, you know, add to the mid. But then there's all the other ones. So it's knowing which ones to try and get rid of. So for me it was I now sit there and go my biggest purpose is I want to help um, people, particularly people that work with kids, unleash their potential which then helps kids unleash their potential. That's like what I want to do. That's my whole purpose. So if things don't match to that properly, then I start to push that away. Mm. So um, as much as it pained me to stop the basketball league, I'm bringing this up because it only happened like literally four I love weeks that. ago. Yeah, because uh, what? And for those who don't know, obviously you don't know Dan <laughs> as as a friend of mine. This happens so regularly. Every time I catch up with you, like I had this idea, we're all going to do. I don't know. We're all going to fly to the moon, and then the next it'll be another idea. Now that yeah. I say that, actually, so thinking in the last four weeks, there's been a consulting company that I've been trying to convince my wife that we can do <laughs> in a couple of years. There's the PhD, there's the basketball league, and then I submitted a book proposal. So that's, that's, that's four weeks. Yeah. But that said, so I know the book was just me doing what I was saying before, like just yeah. throwing it out there and see what happens. Yeah, it's what I'm, fun, right? I, do you know what I love now is I love when they say no and then you say, oh, you know, thanks so much for the time anyway. Can I get some feedback around that? Because... I don't know if many people do that. I assume most people do, but they actually do let you know. Or if they don't, someone else will. Um, I've also sometimes just called called people and then said, oh, you know, you said no. Is there any, like, feedback at all? So I love sort of getting that feedback. So I guess, look, I had a ridiculous four weeks, but in all of that, I knew that the PhD stuff is still far away. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to work out I look at me now and I say my purpose is wanting to help people unleash their potential, mm-hmm. to help kids discover what they can do. And if things don't match to that, I get rid of them, which pains me to do. And then also at the same time I'm looking at me and my family, what we're hoping to get because my wife and I talk heaps about sort of things that we're looking for so that we can keep growing together. And if it does, if those don't align now, then I say I'm putting them on hold or I think just get rid of them. 
And every time it sucks because I'm like, oh, but that, oh, it's so, it could be so great. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, well, that's all right. Can't do everything. I love that. That I'm going to steal that and use that. What was that book, Grit? Grit. Yeah. It's really amazing book. Okay. I'll put that in the show notes. It's one, of the, it's one of the top TED Talks too. It's in the top 10 TED Talks. So you can just okay. go chucking Grit Talk. Fantastic. Okay, I'm going to read, uh, watch that and read that book too. <laughs> Good. <laughs> both. Perfect. Um, yeah, because I, I, I love that. James and I have both always been goal setters too. And I, I love that idea of setting your intention and purpose. That's an Oprah thing. Set your purpose and intention and so, but I'd never thought about using it to filter all the ridiculous ideas that, that like <laughs> yeah. bombard me all the time. And I and I, I think that you're right, particularly when you're a dad or a mum or you're a parent in a family, your life not only not no longer just is about what do you want, but what is best for your family as a whole unit. And that evolves and changes yeah. as your kids grow. What has becoming a dad taught you? Really simply, like I'll add on to it, but if you're putting your time and your energy to one thing, it means it's going away from others. So for me, I was such an idiot when I first became a dad. So I had, I think on day three of my daughter being born, I was off attending like a job interview for this school leadership position. And at the same time was doing my master's. I had this mad panic. I'm like, oh, my wife's pregnant and she's doing this incredible like job growing actual life, I better step up and do something. And so I went and then started tutoring at a, a uni and teaching classes there. So while my daughter had been born, doing a job interview, marking 50 master's assignments, writing a mar- writing master's assignments, and then also trying to do blog posts and then also try and be a dad oh and a supportive husband because my wife had just had a re- pretty traumatic birth. She couldn't do much. So then I was having to do things, being up at night. So no wonder, like, it was so stressful. And so it was a really hard lesson to learn. Like, I crashed massively. And I was so wrecked. I was so tired. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Teaching full time as well. And um, the thing that I learned that was so hard to learn was you just got to pair things back and you have to work out what's important and and you know, you know me, like I love doing stuff. Yeah. So it's it's really tricky, but it's also really empowering because now everything I do I love. So wow. it's awesome. Like it's so cool. Yeah. It is. God, it's so funny. I sometimes believe the universe gives you things at the right time too. And or if you put maybe it's just that if you put stuff out there, you get answers back. It's funny when you talk about um, the universe gives you things. Is it also that you're looking for it more like you know sometimes you're ready to hear things so I often talk to people saying they you might tell them that but they can't hear it until they choose to listen or you might not see it until you're willing to look so sometimes these things now like you're suddenly feeling a bit more ready like oh yeah like someone I'm sure smarter than me has already said this stuff to you but just tonight you happen to be hearing it I guess so yeah 
Yeah, you're right. You're right. Or I'm yeah. a guru. Or and, you are. Uh, just subscribe like, now to yeah. Upgrade Think Learn <laughs> and, Guru. No, yeah. do not. Do yes, not. definitely. You should. <laughs> definitely, you should subscribe. Yes, and listen, Dan's what a great podcast too. Very yeah, a new yeah, it's it's going into a new format this year. So I've sort of been holding off. I recorded some things, and I'm trialing a something that I think will be uh, a lot better. So there's new episodes definitely okay. coming out soon. So I wanted to ask you now about future tracks because you are no oh, yeah. longer in the classroom. Yeah. From as my friend who is the most passionate, like if someone was to say who's your most passionate teacher friend, <laughs> Daniel Steele would have come up. Like a thousand percent <laughs> on top of the list. Yeah. So it's so surprising to me that you're not in the classroom, but and, and yet not surprising. <laughs> tell me, tell me what's happened now. Oh, what I, I blame me doing. So when I did my masters a few years ago, that planted the seed where um, I realised that what I wanted to do was bigger than the classroom. So I loved, like, and I still do. I one of my favourite things is just to connect with any kid, any person and get on their level. Um, and I used to love doing that with the 30 kids that were in my class. Just It used to be so much fun. It used to be really full on too like because I have really high expectations and I know that. But, God, it was fun. And, but then I started to realise oh, if, I, if I can win over and build up a really strong relationship with the teachers around me and I can get them to start to take some risks and them to start to go, oh, what happens if you did this? How do the kids respond and when they see that the kids respond in a certain way, suddenly instead of it just being 30 kids with the level it could suddenly be 100 kids. And then I started thinking, oh, so if I do that with a whole school, that might be 300, 400 kids. And if I start to do that even bigger, what could happen? So it's a, it's a complete ego thing. It was like, oh, how can I make as much of an impact and support people? And like you were saying with the universe, things work out mysteriously Future Tracks, this amazing, I guess look, I've been calling it an education startup to people in education. Really people are calling it a social enterprise, a not-for-profit, and it purely is starting out for early childhood education and it's about us creating these programs that can build up um, and raise, I guess, the quality of early childhood teachers. And I'm so lucky because my role is I'm getting to develop these programs to mentor teachers. So it, nothing... Nothing like this fully exists yet in Australia. It exists in some ways and some people have been doing mentoring but what we're looking to do is really invest in teaching people specific skills so that you can build up a really strong rapport with people and a really strong relationship so then they can start to take those positive risks. So I'm sort of hoping that I get to share my passion and the things that I love to do with kids and with adults and start to do that with upcoming early childhood teachers. Mm, it's exciting. Yeah, it, it's really yeah. daunting too because, you know, I can't just turn and, – and I'm sort of doing this like we've got a really small team so I can't just sit there and turn to the person next to me and like, so last time you did this, like <laughs> what did you – and I love doing that. I'm like, all right, yeah. I want to learn from your mistakes. What happened? So it's really daunting in that regard and it's really full on because now we're working with three universities. We've got undergraduate students coming through who are going to go through our program. We've also got people that are looking to upskill from a diploma to a bachelor's and they all need mentoring and we need to train up the mentors. So it's becoming real now. And you know, like we just make the thing. Yeah. Like 
it's gone from the idea to now you're like, oh shit, we got to do, we have to do this now. Yeah, it's a thing that actually yeah, happens it's like, and okay, exists, and, and you've got responsibilities, and yeah, and you have to do it consistently. Yes, like, yeah. So, yeah. which I'm really excited about, and that's a really fun part. So I'm I can't wait to get to go meet the different undergrads and the diploma people. And I know they're going to do in some way like a lot of teachers do, they doubt themselves. So I can't wait to be that person there to sort of supportively challenge them to realise, no, guys, you can. You've got this huge potential. You might just not realise the strengths and skills that you have mm-hmm. and trying to help them unleash that. Yeah. it's What I find really interesting about this whole story so far for you yeah. is that I remember for ages you were – feeling really stressed at, at work and like as in teaching was such a big job mm. and you were kind of very restless. Would you agree with that in your yeah. profession, yeah. professional life in this in teaching as it looked like then? And so you applied for a lot of different roles in a lot of different like, you know, schools and different spots. And I remember your wife Ellen saying to you, somewhere there is a job <laughs> that is Daniel Steel shaped and it'll be somewhere out there and we just don't know where it is yet. And then this job just sort of mm. appeared. Yeah. And yeah. you applied and you got it and I, now you're doing something totally different. I remember reading the position description and the, and the skills and I was like, oh, this, this is literally me. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's what I love doing. It was pretty, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's courageous, mm. I think. And Well, I don't know. A lot of, a lot of, I must be an idiot. A lot of people keep saying, they're like, oh, good on you for taking that plunge. I'm like, oh, you wouldn't do it? Oh, <laughs> oh was it a scary thing? <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> I know people always say that to me about not going back to teaching or like starting Planet Broadcasting and I never thought because I like starting stuff like <laughs> yeah, you. We're yeah. always just like, I need I don't know how to do it. That's me. I'm there. Do you think so? So this is the thing I've been wondering about with creative people because I've been reading this book um, called Rest. Check it. It's amazing because it talks about how people, creative people's brains work. So it says Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Do Less um, by Alex Sujung Kim Pang is an amazing book because it talks about that the most, some of the most creative people in history and they've even done like, they talk about all this different research, like in an easy to understand way too, but they had access to different activities that helped them switch off. And so for me, it's like taking that plunge, I don't know, because I'm happy to stuff up and I also get those times where I try and learn from it and often it's the times when I do those activities that help me switch off and get a bit of rest with it. So I think, yeah, like I know that's often why you and I talk about things because we get so on, but we also, when we switch off, we are... Like we go find those things. Like I know with music for you or writing for you yeah. is where you just get into almost that flow and that that switching off state. But what you're actually doing is processing all this other information too. Yeah, and I know I find that with running as well. Running is the other thing. Though since I had my fall. <laughs> I didn't want to say anything. I have a, and actually, honestly, every time I go for a run, because I don't do it as often anymore, but when I do in nature, I always come back and I'm like, James, I've solved everything. I know, of course. And he's like, yeah, you do this every time. You just don't really see how valuable running or being in that space in nature is to you. And it's not until, or like writing, I feel the same way. Just writing nonsense in journaling, they often say, is the same kind of tool. That it's just getting all of those running thought streams kind of into a cohesive thing where you can then see all the connections. 
And I find running helps me too. Uh, I'm, I'm laughing because I'll go for a run um, and I'll sometimes then come in and as I'm walking through the door, like it's almost like everything's been connecting and then I'll go, oh, of course. And Ellen's <laughs> like, what? It, what? I'm like, oh, no, that's all right. I've just worked out. There's this thing. And I go off to the computer and I start writing down something. Yeah. She's like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> You're on to it again. Yeah, I know. I always just want to talk to James about it. And he was like, I'm working. I'm actually working. I can't spend an hour listening to you talk about an idea that you probably will never do. I'm like, but this thing and this thing. Yeah. So we have a rule that when, because most mornings we go for a, a family walk and we'll go get a coffee or something. And our rule is like, I have to check if she's awake yet. Because if I don't normally, if I start a sentence with, so it's funny, isn't it? Ellen knows that I'm going to ask some random weird thing that I've been thinking about or I've just suddenly like had all these ideas about and she needs, she's like, I'm not awake for this. You just need to just stop. Just so, let me, yeah. So, so we had to say, are you, are you awake? Can we, can we throw these ideas and questions <laughs> out there yet? I love that. It strikes me that you and Ellen are very thoughtful about the way that you operate as a team and I wanted to ask you, like, what are the practical things that you do as a husband in a part or as you know in a partnership to um, look after your relationship I guess mm, I always like our rule is we always assume best of intentions um, this also as being a new parent it's whatever happens at 3 a.m we don't hold each other accountable <laughs> to um, yeah. you know when you're sleep deprived and stuff but no it's I, I definitely think so we always, it's assume best intentions and for me it's always, I always have to stop and go, no matter what, I I don't see a lot of the stuff that she might do because like, I'm not always there so I might feel like I've, oh, I've been having to put these dishes away. Like, then I go, well, hang on, I also don't, she doesn't see me do that but I don't see all the other stuff she does. So having that ability to stop and remember that just how I see things isn't necessarily right is a really key thing for us to um, and Ellen's so amazing at doing that too. Like we always both stop and say, well, hang on, you know, maybe I'm not seeing this all from one way. We also really believe in the idea of um, they call them bids. So there's little things <laughs> that I'm into that Ellen's not at all. But if I, if I start to say, oh, I've read this really interesting article about blah, 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 or if I said, oh, it's really amazing, I'm just reading this book, Grit, and they're talking about the effects of, you know, high support and high challenge in parents. It's like she's probably got no interest because she's sitting there reading something else or she's watching a show. But she knows that that's me trying to connect in some sort of way. So we both make the effort. If we realise one of us is trying to share an interest, we make sure that we engage in some way and take an interest in one another because if we don't, then we know if you stop connecting with each other in little ways then eventually that leads to being disconnected. Mm. Um, plus also I just bloody learn great stuff from her and it's really interesting to explore it. We also, we make time to talk about what the other one's hoping for. Um, so it's not like a booked in thing, but I think it works out to be, I don't know, once every like four or six months, just like while we're going for a walk or um, if we're having coffee or if we're just sitting down one night and, we're out the back of the house and the kids are all asleep. Like we just sort of touch base and say, oh, so what are you hoping for in this next sort of year? Or what's the next thing that excites you? Or what's something that would really scare you that would be a bit exciting? And I think we both have always done that for, and we've been together now 14 years, um, coming up to 14 years, is that we know if we don't do that, then that's 
when maybe we start to go separate ways and so it's always just checking in with each other and to, and to make sure that you keep sort of learning from one another and finding out what they're into instead of just making it about you. Um, and my my mum and my dad were really funny because it's like we had a, they, they were pretty stressed with all the, like the five kids and we were all crazy kids as well. And they always, I just remember them always just saying like family's the most important thing and you choose to be engaged in it and you choose to talk and, and build up that sense of love and care. So if you don't choose to do it, then you're choosing not to get into that love and care. So, yeah, I always like originally <laughs> it used to feel awkward trying to talk about like how you're feeling and what something was making. But the more you do it, you just get used to it. Um, and my dad was, we're going into that sort of man-boy mm. thing now, but my dad was an amazing role model to me with that because we did this amazing father-son um, camp and <laughs> I could tell that he was building up to say that he loved me. And I was a 16-year-old boy, you know, like at peak thing, being like, go away, Dad, I can't be bothered, piss off, mate. And we were in a tent together and we'd been, we were sort of chatting because we are in the middle of a blizzard, it was freezing, so all you can do is talk. I remember he was just like, oh, I, um, yeah, oh I, uh, well, you know, I, I love you. And he'd never had his dad say that. So this bloke who sort of didn't remember really his dad saying it to him, taking this risk to a 16-year-old, like adolescent boy. And for me that was a game changer. So I just thought, no, nah, I'm always going to be able to share how I feel with those around me because if I can see him do it. Um, and I saw the power that it had on me. So for me in a marriage it's always just being able to be open and and talk about how you're feeling, but make sure you bloody listen to what the others are saying to me. Mm, yeah, it's that give and take. You do a lot of writing, oh, obviously about education and what's best for kids and about fatherhood. And you're also, you've also started writing about, I guess, manhood mm. too. What did your dad kind of impart to you about being a man? My my dad's so interesting because he's, he's someone that's so aware of – of the, the areas that he needs to get better in as a bloke, but also that he also knows how amazing he is too, that he's so different because his dad was so tough on him and he knew he didn't want to be like that, but then sometimes he still does, he still would do certain things mm. that his dad did because I guess that's the modelling and that's all you know. Yeah. And so dad for me has always been someone that like one of my biggest mantras is why wouldn't you try? And he always sort of pushed me to do that. But he also always said, you know, you're the one, you choose how you sort of connect with people and how you engage with people. And there was never this thing about what a real bloke is in the traditional sense. So you never sort of, like I, I grew up playing rugby and I did swimming and basketball, I was all sporty and everything like that. But that didn't make me a man. Like for him, he always made it that, and I guess Steve Biroff often talks about this too, like, it's that real man has, like we might physically have more power than the women around us, but it's a real man is in control and a real man knows how to control themselves and how to support people and a real man shows love and a real man knows that they are there to build up and support others. It's not about trying to put down people or have authority over people. It's about what can you do to connect and help people. Mm. So because my dad's um, probably similar to your dad too, like very social, like socially mm. just massively into all, um, any sort of social justice campaign. He's pretty religious. It sort of wanes in the in the recent years, but it was very much about what can you do for other people because it's bigger than you. Mm. 
Definitely. The really key thing, and I, I assume it's similar to you, is we have the power to act. That that's yes. a key thing. That you're not powerless. You might feel it, but you're not. No. And so I'm very, very lucky. Like that's a bit of a privilege that I think I grew up with. Yeah, that ability, yeah, that you have power to change. To bloody submit a book proposal yeah. or to go like write songs and create a podcast network. Like you can just, you can act. Yeah, you can. You can change the way that your life It's looks. very lucky lesson to have. So I feel pretty amazed to. Definitely. Yeah. I, I completely agree. Being the father now of two daughters. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If in an ideal world, because obviously we're living at a time where there's a huge amount of gender politics mm. happening. There's a huge rise in feminist sort of voices coming to the fore. There's a there's the Me Too movement mm. and, and a lot of talk around men and men's behaviour. You've written a really interesting article. What is your perspective on where you think we even can start to change that culture or that toxic masculinity or... You know, all of that yeah, it, it was funny. Um, I was reading, there was a piece done. Oh, I, can't, I can't remember for the life of me where it was. But someone was trying to, they were trying to define toxic masculinity and they were talking about how it ends up, it becomes toxic when it starts to have negative effects on yourself and also those around you. And for me, the thing that I, like I have such a weird, I have such a weird story with all this because I've come from four years of a bachelor's degree in a female-dominated course to then going into primary school teaching, which is, you know, three quarters women. I had these amazing female role models in my sisters, my aunties, my mum, all really strong, assertive women. My wife is the same, her sisters, her mum. So I've had all these years and years of different perspectives as well as I've got really blokey mates. Um, so I've got these two different perspectives and the thing that I really, that struck me in the article that I was sharing with you before is... I still catch myself when people start to talk about, oh, men, you need to, starting to go, oh, well, it's not me, and I start to get defensive. And then I've realised that the thing that I, I struggle with is it's not that it's – I get we have to make things really simple and so we start to turn it into an us and them. Mm. And for me the issue is when we talk about, say, feminism, is ultimately that's about everyone being together. So it's about equality. It's about mm. providing equality for all regardless and so the more that we start to push, and I'm so I'm I'm quite an aware male, and I find myself sometimes getting defensive, and then I catch myself, and I'm like, no, well, Dan, yes, the stats talk about there's mainly men are doing committing domestic violence is by males, males are killing more males, males are killing lots of females, females are getting injured too. So a lot of it comes down to men, but we can't keep making it divisive. So mm. we need to start to think about so what can we do to bring people together. And I think the issue is with it's so important to keep raising the awareness, but we then need to start to think about, okay, so we're raising the awareness, but what can we do to also bring people together to a shared vision? Because I don't think men will start to, those people, I shouldn't just say men, those people who need to start to change how they shift and start to act, they're less likely to, like the first step for any social change is we need to have a shared vision. If we can't see why and we can't see a specific reason for changing or what it could look like, it's going to be so much harder. So for me, the reason that I was writing that article and, I, and I'm still now really pushing um, for some people to run it is I really wanted to start to challenge that notion and I'm just one voice is what can we do to start to bring more people together? 
Because until we start to show empathy, even to the people that maybe we feel don't deserve it, we won't ever be able to then change our messaging. And we won't be able to change the way to then start to hear maybe what, they, what they're thinking. So then we can start to change how we argue to them and discuss things and then get them to change. Because it's not that we're right and we're wrong. It's that we know that change has to happen to reduce violence and to, choose, and to reduce what's happening in our boys and our men and our women um, and girls. And to do that, we have to bring everyone together because otherwise it will never happen. Mm. So for me with men, it's, it's they're a key part of the equation. So what can we do to bring them on board and make them feel empowered? And I know that sounds ridiculous because I know I'm completely part of a system that is set up for me to succeed. And I'm a straight, white, middle-class male. I am the, like, top 0.1%. I've got complete privilege. But I also know, too, that we still need to make sure that all the people around there, what is the vision that we're going to get so that we can start to get people to change and get them to go, all right, yep, or feel a bit heard, even though we might have already been hearing them for decades and decades and decades, but get them to feel heard, then we can change the way that we're going to actually get them to stop what they're doing or learn or be educated and then start to slowly get that behavioural change happening. There's, it's not an easy fix and it's not a quick fix, but I think the first steps are we've got to get that shared vision and then we have start to have to listen to, well, maybe what is their perspective? And then that just gives us that fuel to then actually shift what they're thinking and, and adapt the actions that we're going to take. Mm. What is the shared vision? So that's great. Well, it's it's a pretty s- simple one in some regards, like, and it's completely utopian, but uh, there's no way I can do what Martin, Martin Luther King Jr. did. But you think about, like, the way that he spoke about vision was, you know, he was talking about a little black girl and a little white girl holding hands mm. and that symbol of equality. So for us it's, like, any anyone can be who they who they want to be or who they should be. Everyone is able to identify their strengths or... Um, yeah, I, and that's the thing that I'm struggling with too is how can, I, how can I word a shared vision where everyone has the ability to be safe, to be who they are, um, where a man can be the bloke that gets down on the floor and plays with his child and, and doesn't have to always just be really rough and take on this role. Like you can be whoever you want to be. Um, so for me, a shared vision would be men and women both celebrating one another, particularly from a male perspective, celebrating themselves, um, not putting each other down, making sure that they can, yeah, acknowledge strengths and... and um, Be vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. Lean into being vulnerable because I, I tell you what, as a man, I'm a master at putting on a mask. Like I used to have different accents that I, like not, and I don't mean as in like I'd suddenly... I'm French. Yeah. No, oh, I'm you know, I, I go to Boston Yard, you yeah. know, I put up, like I... I used to have slightly different accents based on the social groups that I was in and so I used to be really good at putting on – and I know that's like there's been documentaries about that where that's what men do. So so going back to that shared vision is where you don't have to wear a mask. It's, you can take the mask off and it's okay to be you and it's okay to share that you're scared. It's okay to, to say, oh, no, I really love this. This is a thing I'm passionate about and you can actually take that mask off and be okay with who you are and you're not going to be hurt for that. Wow. Is that something that do you think guys carry that 
if you just uh, show weakness or vulnerability, in, not weakness, but I guess emotionally. No, but I think vulnerability you know? would be seen as weakness. Yeah, like, that's what I mean. Like, and and you're, what, you're then scared of being made fun of by your mates or actually being physically yeah, injured. Yeah, like, so one of the things, and it, we would all cringe at it now, like, and again, like I'm saying stuff like that Steve Biddulph, you know, in his, in his man books talks about, like, if you would talk about sharing a feeling or putting yourself out there and saying like, oh, I'm really scared about that. People would say, oh, don't be a fag, don't be gay. And you'd be like, mm-hmm. so early on, like, that's horrible. And especially not only just for men, but like thinking of the, the use of like derogatory language like that, you know, it's so messed up. But so early on, boys get told, no, you don't do that because you're acting like a girl. Or that's what girls do. I'll stop being so girly. I'll stop being like a sook. I'll stop being a wuss. So they learn really quickly. You shut up and you don't share how you feel. So instead you've got to act it out in some sort of way. So what do we go do? We go do really physical sports because we've got to show how we feel or that's how we can take out the anger we're holding or the amount of emotional language that prep boys come in having is – it's amazing hearing like they, they just talk about being sad or happy. Mm. And there's so many nuanced like emotions that we're feeling. My poor daughter, poor thing, I'm like frustrated, disappointed. <laughs> we're talking about being lonely recently. Like – yeah. All this stuff because I want her to. There's lots of. It's not just sad. You're jealous. Yeah, you know, it'd be really like it, like mm. we are masters at them, um, and I'm sure women and girls are too. I can't talk to that because I haven't gone through that. But yeah, I used to I used to hang out with real dickheads, but and 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 some amazing people too. But I had completely different masks. I could pretend to be whoever I wanted to be, and I I'll never forget. As soon as I started uni, I remember saying literally out loud to myself, I'm like. I can just be me. I didn't have to be all that, all those other dance deals because I always used to just, yeah, do what I thought other people wanted. Maybe it's particularly from being in an all-boys school as well. You have to very much put on this bravado and this front. That's so fascinating to me. I mean, obviously girls do the same thing and people do the same. You know, women are endlessly as complex with lots of different masks we wear and you're different for different friends. But I've never felt physically threatened like if I dropped a mask then someone would actually beat me up or and then where all that aggression then ends up in that's only my lived experience and that's my timing I think of my little brother so he also benefited from my dad too like he's really open with sharing about what Mm. he's feeling and and explaining why and not just randomly always like always saying it but when he went through high school, so he was only five years younger than me, he had boys at the same school, all boys school, coming out as gay and they were really applauded. So there's a really big shift in five years, whereas mm. if no one did that, and I, we've got some friends that have, have come out since then and they had a horrible time at school because they then had molten, like, even, like even deeper masks that they were then having to cover and wear. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I should just point out, that I guess for me that high school experience was that way. But I definitely know like all the guys I talk to, friends, it's you do know you put on certain fronts, you put mm. on certain things. And you'd know from your experience also in, in the remote communities, like I remember all those kids, they used to say, yeah, no, you, you can't have to be this front. You can't look like you're scared or worried. Yeah, because you'll be opening yourself up. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting. Well, here's to working on building that utopia, right, where we can all be respected and be who we are and, and all of those oh, things. Oh, that's the idea for the consultancy. That's what we'll do. <laughs> oh, God. Yes, perfect. I'll put up the posters around Collingwood tomorrow. Stay <laughs> tuned, utopia. everyone. Excellent. Yeah. Dance utopia. Okay, let's finish there. How can we find your writing? 
Uh, that's a great question. Um, so right now, it's, uh, you can pretty much access any educational writing and dadhood writing through Upgrade Think Learn. There's also Upgrade Think Learn, the podcast, which is on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And also, I guess, sort of stay tuned. There's different publications that run different articles, um, the ABC or The Age, pretty much anywhere you look up. So they're, they're the main points, though, is um, through UpgradeThinkLearn.com. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. I could talk to you for ages about so many different things. But, yeah, thank you so much for sharing. Oh, I I hope it helped in some sort of way and made sense. Thank you. Definitely. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tots. Bye. You've been listening to a podcast called Just Make the Thing with me, Claire Tonti, and today with Daniel Steele. You can find more about Dan at his blog, Upgrade Think Learn, where he's writing and creating all of the time. He also makes a podcast too, and he works with Future Tracks. So definitely check those out if you're into early childhood learning. You can find more about this show at planetbroadcasting.com or I love to tell stories on Instagram at Claire Tonti or on Twitter at Mrs. Sunday Movies. And you can email the show with suggestions or comments at justmakethethingpod at gmail.com. I love to hear from everybody. Okay, until next time. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.